Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode 15, April 2019, If It Ain't Got Rhythm. From Shakespeare to Rap, a conversation with Phil Thompson. Hello, Paul Meyer here with my latest podcast, a service of paulmeyer.com, where you'll find all my books, ebooks, and services for spoken word training and coaching. Phil Thompson has been a valued colleague for more than 30 years. He's the co-founder of Knight Thompson Speechwork, a master teacher of Fitzmorris voice work, and a professor in the Department of Drama at the University of California, Irvine. See In a Manner of Speaking at paulmeyer.com for links to a full account of Phil's stellar accomplishments in our field. Before you listen to our conversation about the hidden power of rhythm in the spoken word, here's the first of what might become a regular feature of this podcast, testing your skill in identifying accents. What part of the planet do you think the speaker of this recording from IDEA, the International Dialects of English Archive, hails from? Well, here's a story for you. Sarah Perry was a veterinary nurse who had been working dining at a zoo in a deserted district of the territory. So she was very happy to start a new job at a superb private practice in North Square near the Duke Street Tower. Answer next time on podcast number 16. So, Phil, that's supposed to be the first rhythm to which we are exposed as human beings. Supposed to be yes. the uh, underlying impetus for the iambic pentameter, the iambic rhythm. Da dum, da dum. If music be the food, da bum, 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 bum. You know, I have to tell you a short story. When my daughter was in utero, every day I would talk to her, I would sing a song. Forget your troubles, come on, get happy. That was just a sort of evening ritual. And then the day she was born, I started singing it to her. She stopped crying and turned her head in my direction. <laughs> so she clearly knew that voice. That and her mother's heartbeat were her first consciousness, her first consciousness of language and humanity. So rhythm is essential, is central to us, to our lives as human beings. We have other body rhythms. You want to talk about that? Absolutely. Well, we could go down to the small scale and talk about the sodium-potassium pumps in our uh, nerve cells. I don't think we're particularly aware of those. Uh, we certainly have our heartbeat. Uh, we have the rhythm of our breath. But then we have the daylight schedule, the, the circadian rhythms of... 24-hour days. Many, many years ago, I deliberately cut myself off from clock time. Hmm. And I took myself off into the wilderness without anything electrical, without a watch, without a hmm. clock, without any electricity, and disconnected myself from the rhythms that technology confer upon us. And it was the most amazing experience over that three days to see myself sleeping when I was tired, eating when I was hungry, getting off of clock time completely. And and it was amazing to tune back into the rhythms that were around me, the yeah. rhythms of, of nature, the rhythms of the wind, the rhythms of the water. I've never been more aware of myself as a, as a rhythmic human being yeah. on, on those three days when I 
when I went on that solo retreat. There are definitely rhythms around us in the world and internal to our bodies. But what is a rhythm? A rhythm is an alternation or a pattern in sound. If it's a pattern, it must be repeated. Human beings are very good at detecting rhythm. And so the ubiquity of rhythm is a feature of our own minds, of our own perceptions as well. We're always looking yeah. for patterns, aren't we? Absolutely. And if they're not there, we'll impose them. <laughs> Indeed. And so that's, the, that's an engine of meaning in and of itself, that we hear and we assign meaning or we detect pattern. I'm going to play a clip. Das wir nicht sind Stadt und Land, nicht sind Arbeiter, Angestellte, Handwerker, Bauern, Studenten, Bürger, nicht sind irgendwelche Anhänger irgendwelcher Weltanschauungen, sondern dass wir sind Angehörige eines Volkes. How do you experience that, Phil? The dissonance in my perceptions has to do with listening for the use of rhythm and also knowing who that is. Mm -hmm. uh, it's I a remember, little terrifying. I remember from um, the King's speech when the young mm. Queen Elizabeth-to-be said to Daddy, as they were listening to a Hitler rally clip on the newsreel, what's he saying, Daddy? And uh, Colin first replied, well, I don't know, but he's saying it awfully well. And, of course, part of the irony of the King's speech is that the British resistance to the evil of the Nazi empire was entrusted to King George, who, Moses-like, was cursed with being tongue-tied or a stutterer, did not have the gift of rhythm, which the embodiment of evil Hitler clearly possessed. And perhaps particularly because I do not speak or understand German, I can hear the seductive, persuasive power of the rhythm that he brings to his public speaking. The patterns are partially on the word level, but the most dramatic patterns are on the phrase level. There's a, a kind of a surging of events that are moving in this direction. So there's a very strong movement at the end of phrases and that seems to be like a wave that's catapulting us forward towards some conclusion like the waves on the seashore so the thing about rhythm as i say in voicing shakespeare Rhythm is incontrovertible. There is no logic that you can apply that would refute its effect. It will have its way with us, in a sense. So whether it's Hitler or waves on the shore, we're under under the spell of the rhythm, in one instance for good and, and in the other instance for evil, of course. In the scene where Othello makes a vow, he says, so Iago says, maybe your feelings will change, and Othello says, never, Iago. Like to the Pontic Sea, whose icy current and compulsive course ne'er feels retiring ebb, but keeps due on to the propontic and the Hellespont. Good Lord, that's, it is inevitable because it is never ending and because it has surges of idea. 
the audience, knowing how wrong this is, feels simultaneously compelled and terrified. Yes, it really is terrifying how completely under the spell of rhythm we can fall. Yeah. Here's a piece you'll recognize. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. I could have been somebody. <laughs> I could have been a contender. There's that it's, surging. I love the word, the way you're using the word surge to talk about the wave-like seduction. Those rhythms are at a level of language, which I said before is phrasal. We chunk language into units, and these units, especially when they have a strong ending, that feels to me to be what the shape of a surge is. It's interesting that very often a young student afraid of language, perhaps, will start strong and fade away. Exactly. My favorite dictum is start strong, finish stronger. <laughs> yes. And that's because often the language is constructed in that way. Also because people trying to compel tend to move towards this rhythmic phrase there's another thing that I think is very clear in that on the waterfront example, we have a sense that the beat is going on, even if we're not occupying all the beats. So that you can say, I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. So the phrase lengths are different. And in fact, you could take one off. Uh, you could leave out one turn of the wheel before jumping back in. But you, as a performer and as an audience, have a deep sense that there is a wheel, there is a continuing engine of movement going on. Mm -hmm. And but perhaps it's also extra persuasive because it isn't verse. Uh, it is not, pre mm. not predictable. Yeah. When we detect a pattern, we are predicting forward. And when that gets violated, either at the phrase level or at the syllable level we notice those carry meaning yeah let's talk about stress timed languages versus yeah. syllable timed languages unpack that as briefly as you can for our general audience what is a st stress timed language what is a syllable timed language some languages follow an even pattern of time from syllable to syllable and some will follow an even amount of time between stress and stress. If I take a sentence in English that says, you're welcome, and I say, you're very welcome, I've put a very in there, but because it isn't stressed, I haven't changed the length of the utterance. That's the way English behaves. Keeping a similarity of time between one stressed syllable and another stressed syllable. I could have been a contender. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Whereas a lot of other languages have a length of syllable and those are those are maintained. Let's take this example of a single word. If I say photograph, pho is the stressed syllable and it takes up a lot of the time. T takes up almost no time. And in fact, we've changed the shape of the mouth to make it more relaxed. 
if we change the stress and we say photography, then suddenly the tag syllable lengthens. It actually opens up in terms of the mouth shape as well. And so we have a certain amount of stress, a certain amount of time rather, that we're willing to give to the word photograph or photography. Depending on which syllable we want to mark as stressed, we give it more of the real estate. And that expansion and contraction of real estate is, to me, the feature of English in particular as a stress-timed language that makes it rife for poetic construction. There's a sense in, let's say, Italian that uh, you're not going to contract. And so photography, each one of those syllables is, in a way, struggling to be as full. Yes. Uh, I noticed you did, instead of photography, you did full photography. You used a pure vowel where we would reduce yeah. that syllable to a schwa, a neutral vowel. For English speakers, that's so obvious as to be invisible. In my practice, I divide my time almost equally between actors and non-actors. And many of my non-actor clients are learning English as a second language and often, of course, come from a syllable-timed language. And much more important than teaching them the individual phonemes of English is teaching them the stress-time nature of English rhythm. I'm drifting off of, of rhythm and onto accent, but rhythm is an essential feature. I would expand that and say that it's prosody, which is the melodic and rhythmic aspects. It's so essential to accent for exactly, exactly the reason that you mentioned. As you well know, as an accent trainer, the features that we're talking about here are prosodic features, melodic and rhythmic features. When an actor can properly apprehend the prosody of an accent, they will almost magically hypnotize themselves into getting the other features right. That's, and, and of I course, think, the audience hmm. doesn't process oh, yes. the language in terms of the segments. They're listening to the chunks. Absolutely. And for them, that prosody is salient as a what we're hearing when we hear accent. One of the strongest and little-recognized differences between American Southern and the other U.S. regions is precisely in the greater difference, the much greater difference between the stressed syllables and the unstressed syllables. There's a feeling that people often describe as slow-talking as opposed to fast-talking. I did a little experiment with the IDEA website. I took samples of southern speakers and samples of uh, New York speakers. I bet I know what you're going to say. You did, you, did, <laughs> you did a word per minute thing, right? Yep, I did indeed. And because they're speaking the same text, it was very easy to do. And I assumed that the results would be that the New Yorkers would, would be the fastest, the highest words per minute, and the southerners the slowest. The fastest person was a southern speaker, and then the next fastest was a New Yorker, and it alternated New York Southern, New York Southern until the very end. So there was no detectable clumping of difference in terms of speed. But it's those occasional long vowels that persuades us that we're listening to a slow speaker, when in fact it's just the occasional stressed word that is lengthened that way. Even the word drawl is drawing. Yeah. Uh, we 
hear that things are drawn out. And so we think, oh, that's a slow talking person. But what we're perceiving is slowness in a place we might not expect it to be. And we're ignoring the quickness in the places because, again, English is a a stress-timed language, we tend to ignore unstressed syllables and we are really aware of stressed syllables. And we tend to lengthen them. That's the the essence of the verse form that you and I work in probably more than any other, the iambic pentameter, because it's so favored by English-speaking poets from antiquity that it seems yes. to be the natural habitat of English verse, the iambic pentameter. And it's that contrast between the stressed and the unstressed, isn't it? To be or not to be, that is the question. If music be the food of love, play on. So arguably, the iambic pentameter is actually much more suited to the rhythms of American Southern. If music be the food of love, play on. There is a feature there in classical Greek verse. It was very much about short and long, and we definitely use that feature. But we might also use volume or even variation of an art of articulation to make stress as well. I'm thinking of, in sooth, I know not why I am so sad. Sad is a short vowel in English, and yet it's one of the stressed syllables. And so... We're sometimes using length in English verse and sometimes using a different kind of prominence. But we are very clearly alternating between these two. If you take, if music be the food of love, play on. If I only say the stressed syllables, mu, be, fu, love, on. There's more sense in that than in if, ik, be. <laughs> I can't even do it. <laughs> and so we're noticing the parts that rise above the surface that have been made prominent. And Shakespeare has conveniently arranged the language to put the important ideas, for the most part, in those prominent places. Mm-hmm. For the benefit of our general audience, mm. who may have forgotten <laughs> their iambic pentameter, give us a quick rundown. The quickest way we can do this is to say that multisyllabic words in English have have lexical stress. That is, the word itself has inherent in it a notion that one syllable is stressed and the other is unstressed, for, for example. Exactly. Or we could say my name, Philip, and my middle name, David, and my last name, Thompson, all have this pattern of alternation, Philip David Thompson. And it's the first syllable there that's stressed and the second syllable that's unstressed. That's built into the word. If my name were Philippe David, it would be ambiguous whether the first or the second syllable or is if stressed. You, or if you put it into a line of verse, here's Philip David <laughs> Thompson. Exactly. It becomes iambic exactly. because you've introduced a preceding unstressed syllable. That's exactly right. Another way you could imagine it is if my name were Louise de Cure, Louise de Cure, Louise de Cure, Louise de Cure, that's a pattern of alternation which is starting unstressed. But I actually like your alteration better. By just adding a head to it that's unstressed, we get that ba-bump, ba-bump, ba-bump heartbeat. So the easiest way, if you've you've got a thought that is predominantly trochaic, the easiest way for a poet to turn that into iambic pentameter is to put an O or... (laughs) Exactly. Oh, if... (laughs) 
And as you, uh, I think if you got in the time machine, you would hear my parents at one point or another saying, oh, Philip, 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 <laughs> Philip, Philip. <laughs> That's an iambic pentameter line that has been spoken in this universe before. And we hear those things and we don't detect them as off. We detect them as incredibly right, that somehow meaning is lining up with a natural repeated rhythm. I think, the, and, and that's why it's so easy to to come up unknowingly with yes. an iambic pentameter. I bet you and I could demonstrate it right now. I'll go first. If only she would look my way once more. It doesn't take long to no. come up with ten syllables alternating strong and weak. Exactly. Stress. If only she would look my way once more. That alternation happens often by accident. You go for breakfast. I think I'll have the ham and eggs today. It doesn't matter what I order now. Any phrase is sort of likely to, if not likely, it's common enough that we see it occur and hear it occur and we don't even note it, just in, in natural speech. I, I suppose if we're talking for the general audience about what iambic pentameter is, we should make a distinction between the iambic part of it and the pentameter part of it. Mm -hmm. Iambic is the repetition of da-dum. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. It doesn't mean that they're all the same. That same phrase, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Any pattern like that is iambic because each foot is and I am is an instance of that unstressed, stressed. Sometimes one of the unstressed syllables is actually struck more forcibly yeah. than one of the so-called stressed syllables. Absolutely. So there can be a mismatch in terms of the height of each of those peaks. And yet we still call that an iambic pentameter. Let's try that. In sooth, I know not why I am so sad. In sooth, I know not why I am so sad that so could be strong. As long as sad is stronger than so, we've still got an I am there. Why I, uh, in sooth, I know, not why I am. So that I am in there could be, probably is, very unstressed. And then five, sooth, I know five of those makes a pentameter, right? Yeah. And so penta is five, and so it's that length of line but that sense of there being a way of measuring. In fact, measure is one of the words we use to describe verse. And dance. Uh, and dance. Or music. We can say there are measures. We can say there are bars in music. And what we're really talking about is basically a line break. <laughs> we're, we're talking about how wide the sheet of paper is. And if we decide our line endings based on the number of these repeating units, then we've got the verse form and we've got a name for it. But it would be possible to hear verse continuing and not know exactly where those line breaks are. The line break is separate from the sense break. Uh, a sentence and a line aren't exactly the same thing. Yes, and in, my, in voicing Shakespeare, I point out that... There's a wonderful, delicious tension between the shape mm. of the line and the shape of the thought. And sometimes they are totally congruent, as in Friar Lawrence, 
The grey-eyed morn smiles on the frowning night, checkering the eastern clouds with streaks of light, and flecked darkness like a drunkard reels from fourth day's path and tightens fiery wheels. So the shape of his thought coincides with the shape of his line, and, mm-hmm. and it seems to betoken, as I argue in the book, that the congruence between his thought and his verse line bespeaks a kind of complacency. That he's certain about mm-hmm. the way the universe works. And it's interesting to note that Friar Lawrence never in the course of Romeo and Juliet from then on does he ever speak yeah. so regularly. I'm not sure he even speaks in rhymed couplets beyond that first speech, does he? I don't think so. In fact, I'm glad you pointed out the rhyme there because the the rhyme at the line end is a good way of marking and making clear that there's a regularity in terms of the length of those units. And then we have Mercutio who's who speaks yeah. in verse, but so wildly that he puts the verse form in jeopardy. And, you're, yes. you're, and the audience, not that they should ever be aware whether a character is speaking in prose or verse, not that they should ever have that conscious awareness. But if you, if you ask them, is, is Mercutio speaking in verse or in prose, they, they probably say prose because the, the verse is so yeah. wild and unpredictable in its rhythms. And that's, that's his mercurial character. You think you're okay when he says, oh, then I see Queen Mab have been with you. And then he starts to unreal the whole thing. And that whole speech is really about unraveling that pattern. And he has it's so be- many line, uh, run on lines and so many trochaic, trochaic uh, headers to, to the lines. It's, it's, uh, the, the verse form is almost in jeopardy. And, and Shakespeare knows how, yeah. how far he can push it. And, and to play, Absolutely. to play the, the, the contrast between the, the wild verse trying to break out of its, break, break out of its bonds and, and someone who's obediently yeah. within the conventions of society and obediently predictable in their rhythms. That's at the core of what's going on in these plays and what Shakespeare was particularly interested in. I, I think that verse dramas before his time, were very regular. And he began violating and unraveling and reeling out of control for the purpose of, for figurative purposes. That is to say, to represent the inner state of the person speaking. So by the time you get to Lear or Winter's Tale, it's difficult go play, boy, play, your mother plays and I play too. It's it's often very difficult to scan or to check what the pattern is because the pattern is unraveling the way the minds of the speakers are unraveling. I dare say no poet before or since has conjured more varied music out of the iambic <laughs> pentameter keyboard. Yes, you, you and I work with Shakespeare quite a bit. And that experience is what makes it worth coming back to. I'm glad that you mentioned your your book because there, there's a phrase in there that I, I think of often and repeat to my students, which is that the relationship between thought and pattern creates a kind of dual consciousness. That seems exactly right, that what the audience is there for, what Shakespeare is doing for us is to give us pattern and then defer from that pattern. And how do you defer from pattern? The need for sense, the rhetorical structure 
asserts a different value than the expected rhythm. If we think of Lear and my poor fool is hanged at the end of that speech, thou come no more. Now here comes a line. Never, 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 never. Five trophies, five trophies. <laughs> it doesn't strike me ever when I hear that as artificial or mechanical. It just feels as though the world has turned inside out. It feels entirely emotionally true at that moment. And that's because we use rhythm to make meaning in unpatterned language that we speak every day. I'm going to play you something now. This is a wonderful British poet called Kate Tempest. Here's the milk of human kindness, up in arms, break the ice. Here's the green-eyed monster, his discretion is the better part of valour. And now his words with their arms around each other's shoulders swagger to the ends of their phrases. They're proud of everything they've done, of how his pages have lasted through the ages, of how he has become a poet whose poetics have embedded themselves so firmly in the fabric of our language. It's like he's in our mouths. His words have tangled round our own and given rise to expressions so effective and expressive expressing how we feel, we can't imagine how we'd feel without them. What do you hear? The patterns pop out of nowhere. That is to say, there is a resolution into surprising pattern because so much is just the patterns we use in daily life. Then when they align or rhyme, it becomes very clear that we've landed in a place of pattern. And that's the expressiveness of Shakespeare. The expressiveness of, of hip hop is the establishment of a clear beat. And then either through rhyme and internal rhyme or repetition, we develop patterns out of what feels like just the normal chaotic looseness of language. Uh, I also heard very clearly her modern London accent, which was terrific. Yes, I, I bookmarked it, first of all, as a wonderful <laughs> example of uh, multicultural London English. <laughs> Take us into some of the rap samples that you brought to yeah. today. I collected a few of these because I wanted to, because I frequently will refer my students to rap as another instance in modern culture of rhythmic language and the use of rhythm, also the establishment and violation of rhythm as a way of carrying meaning. The first sample that I put in our Dropbox here is Rapper's Delight. Uh, it's sort of the iconic birth of hip-hop. In fact, the first line is, I said a hip-hop. So that's in one way where that that phrase comes from. I said a hip so you can hear in that particularly in the second section now, what you hear is not a test. I'm rapping to the beat. Essentially, the pattern we've been talking about. What, hear, not, test, rap, to, beat. That is 
in the beat as well. And that's one of the things about hip hop that is very clear and different from Shakespeare. And that is that the underlying beat is stronger because it's present. That is to say, you've got a beat track. This early rap is very much obeying that rhythm. The relationship to the beat is at the heart of Shakespeare and at the heart of verse and at the heart of rap. Now, later examples are more complex in their relationship to the rhythm and they have different metrical patterns. The sample uh, in number four, which is Gangsta's Paradise by Coolio, it begins... As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. And you can hear that there is an established unstressed, unstressed, stressed pattern. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but there's a little variation in there. We've got, as I walk, one, through the val, two, of the shad, and so we've got more unstressed going on in there. And then in the second line, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. The rhythm is altered there enough that we've almost departed from it. We don't have to worry about that because there's a beat underneath it. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. Because I've been blasting and laughing so long that even my mama thinks that my mind is gone. But I ain't never crossed a man that didn't deserve it. Me be treated like a punk, you know that's unheard of. You better watch how you're talking and where you're walking. Or you and your homies might be lying to talk. I really hate the trip, but I got a low. As they croak, I see myself in the pistol smoke. Fool, I'm the kind of cheater the little homies want to be like on my knees in the night, saying prayers in the street line. So you can hear that the, the established pattern is there, but we are occasionally lengthening a phrase so it covers a, a longer part of the beat structure or we're adding in a couple more unstressed syllables in there. And that's very much the way Shakespeare's operating as well. Yeah, there's a principle to be observed here that only in the departure from a pattern can you recognize the pattern. Absolutely. And that is, as we've said from the beginning here, something that is essential to our perceptions because we are we live in the sea of rhythmic speech. And so we don't have to consciously clock that that's happening. It does something to us emotionally and psychologically, which is why this sort of rhythmic language is so compelling. What kind of conversation would Shakespeare have had with some of our great rap artists? It's interesting that the language for describing beat is fairly similar, if not identical, I think once we got over the, are we talking about a line or a bar or how we talked about the beats as opposed to feet, once we got past that, we'd be essentially speaking the same language. I did an experiment uh, in preparing for today where I took a beat from a rap song and then dropped in some Shakespeare on the top of it. 
what I found remarkable was how easily it lay on top. So the sample was John Gielgud doing a bit of Shakespeare. The underlying track was the instrumental track of a song by Rob Roy. If you wouldn't mind playing that, I think you'll what you'll hear is what sounds, considering the little amount of work I did on it, pretty well produced, as though Gilgood and Rob Roy had sat down together to do it. To be or not to be. That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles by opposing If I fussed around a little bit with the beat per minute of the rap track, it would be even easier because there is a sort of natural rhythm of English speech. If I put myself on the seashore and back in, back in Britain, mm. some of my peak experiences have been by the seashore, standing by the ocean, feeling the power of the waves, hearing the crash of the waves upon the rocks, hearing the scream of the seagulls, feeling my infinitesimal smallness in the face of, you know. So I'm putting myself yes. into a heightened state. And, and, of course, my language responds in, the, in, that, in that way. And my prose yeah. becomes very, very close to verse in that sense. I think that's right. I think that you are figuring your feeling in the material of the language one of those layers of language is rhythm. There's a way in which we expect this to happen and we can violate it by shifting from the florid and expanded down into the sharp, tiny and precise, as you did with the word infinitesimal. That is not just rhythm. It's the figuring of change of feeling in rhythm. One of the most famous speeches in American culture is this one. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. What do you hear? There's something built into that that I want to draw our attention to, which is the way in which call and response is part of the awareness of rhythm, that, that rhythm is in relationship. If I say, I have a dream, there's a response from the audience, even if it's a silent, silent response. The fact that the text returns to the same words or repeats, starts over, there's a rhythm inside of the language, but there's also, uh, as, as we said before, a phrasal rhythm that is about giving and receiving as well. And that is very much the, the rhythm of conversation and the rhythm of breath that we exhale, inhale, and repeat. You know, Phil, following the rhythm of our conversation it feels like we've come full circle examining at the outset the power of rhythm in an unholy cause and now finishing with a 
stellar example of rhythm put to a holy cause. I have so enjoyed our exploration into the rhythmic part of our lives as human beings. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to you for joining Phil Thompson and me, Paul Meyer. We acknowledge fair use of the brief clip from On the Waterfront, 1954, directed by Elia Kazan and starring Marlon Brando. My ebook, Voicing Shakespeare, is available only from paulmeyer.com. Join me next time when my guest will be Kristen Linklater, author of Freeing the Natural Voice and Freeing Shakespeare's Voice. I asked Kristen to talk about the intriguing place where voice and speech intersect. Next time on In a Manner of Speaking.